Well, we are going to begin this morning uh, with a, a parable. It's not uh, a parable from the Bible, just another parable. It's called the parable of the life-saving station. And it goes like this. Uh, on a dangerous sea coast, there was a life-saving station. Uh, it was a building, just a little hut with one boat, sort of a, a faithful, devoted crew. And they, obviously, their job was to, to look out over the waters day and night and to save those who got into trouble on the waters. Shipwrecks, uh, people stranded, whatever it may be. They did this work faithfully. They did it joyfully. And uh, as, as the years went on, the life-saving station grew because as more and more people were saved, more, more people wanted to be part of the life-saving you know, crew going on. Other people heard about it and wanted to join. So new boats were bought, new crews were trained. And in time, they upgraded the facility. People looked around and said, you know, this, we, need, we can do better. And so they got rid of the old uh, cots. They brought in new beds. They got new furnishings. And in time, the life-saving station became uh, kind of a social hub where people would come and, and hang out and wait for the next opportunity to go out. The thing is, in time, uh, fewer and fewer members were, were actually interested in the life-saving part of the life-saving station. So they decided, let's hire some workers. We'll hire those that can go and just full-time uh, watch the seas and go and do the the work of life-saving. So they did that. Things were going well. But then one, one dark and stormy night, there was a large ship that was wrecked. And the crews went out, the hired workers went out, and they brought in just boatloads and boatloads of, of sopping, wet, half-drowned, dirty people. And it really threw the life-saving station into a bit of chaos. I mean, people were unprepared for all these people there in their social club. In fact, the, the evening meal service had to be, you know, postponed. Uh, bingo night was canceled, and people were in a bit of a fur. So they had some conversations about this. They decided the best thing probably is for us to build some other buildings, some outbuildings closer to the water that could process anyone else who comes from a big shipwreck without as much disturbance. In time, what happened, maybe not surprisingly, is that there became a bit of a rift. There were those that wanted to discontinue kind of the life-saving activities of the life-saving station. They said, that's not really what we're about anymore. We've got other things going on. There were some, though, the remaining few that said, what are you talking about? We're a life-saving station. We have to be doing the business of life-saving. But they were outvoted. And they said, look, if you want to keep doing that, that's fine, but you need to find somewhere else to do it. And that's what happened. The, the, the faithful few went and found a new building, started a new life-saving station. But interestingly, in a few years, the same temptations crept in. And again, a, a rift developed between those that liked this new life-saving station, liked the social aspects of it, and those that really wanted to go out and do the life-saving. And so along the coast now, the parable goes, you can go and, and see these beautiful life-saving stations. You see a, a dangerous ocean beyond them. But not a lot of life savings actually going on. And see, the reason that I tell this parable is, is because there's a lot of parallels between the church of Ephesus that Paul is writing to in 1 Timothy and the idea of a life saving station. They really were like a, like a lighthouse in, in the darkness of Asia Minor at the time. They, they were a key city, they, they were, were a lot of trade, and they were a place where a lot of people were being saved by the gospel of Jesus. Paul's concern, though, was that the church would get more and more comfortable just kind of being the church. 
That they would, they would find satisfaction and joy and pleasure in just coming together, just having theological conversations with each other, rather than doing the hard work of going out into the darkness to save those who were lost. And yet that's exactly what the call of the church is. To rescue the lost by the life-saving power of the gospel of Jesus. That's what our text focuses on this morning. Two main things, really. The, the unique power of the gospel of Jesus to save And also the call to action for the church itself in terms of bringing that salvation to the people around them. So we're going to look at both those things. I'm going to read first though our text this morning. Uh, As I said, uh, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2. And this is what Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. He says, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high position, that, they may, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So that's God's word this morning. Today, Paul, not lying to us, telling the truth, which is great. Um, Big picture, what we see here in this text are two main things, right? First, he he begins with kind of a gospel call to action, right? To pray for people, to live a a godly life. And then the second part, he talks about the underlying theology behind it. For our sermon, we're going to flip it. We're going to begin with the theology and then end with the action that we're called to because I want us to leave from this place having clear in our mind uh, what we are called to as, as the church. So, Our two points, gospel theology and then gospel action. Uh, And and here's the beginning part. We're going to jump into verse 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So we have here Paul articulating the gospel and also uh, highlighting some aspects of the gospel that are uh, sometimes kind of tough to grasp because there's, there's this dynamic in the gospel where is, it is at the same time a very exclusive, like very narrow, uh, w- w- but also very wide, like very inclusive. The, the narrowness comes from the claims of Jesus himself. Right? He says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Couldn't be more exclusive. There's no other way that you are going to connect with God the Father except through me. Very narrow, very exclusive, and yet, and yet we see here in our text just this, this wideness, this all-encompassing call that God would want all people to be saved. So we're going to look at these two different aspects of the gospel. We're going to begin with those things which are exclusive. And there's, there's three things here. First, uh, we see that there is only one God. There is only one God. We see it right away in verse 5 there. For there is one God. In our world, in fact, for generations, but you might say especially today, there's much greater comfort with the idea of a plurality of gods. right? Like like many ways to God. Maybe there's one God, but there's a lot of ways to get there. Uh, There's a lot of different truths and options that could work. You know, what is good for you is good for you. That's great. We can all have our thing that brings us peace. And yet with the 
what the Bible has said from the very beginning is that there is only one God. There is is one God and three persons, this idea of a Trinitarian God, and we see it all the way back in Deuteronomy. Uh, Here's how the Jewish people would begin, even to this day, in their prayers each day. They would say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, this idea of one God, it actually, I mean, if you really think about it, it um, it does best represent what we see around us. And here's what I mean by this. Just as one example of, of sort of looking to see how what the Bible claims to be true and asserts is true from God, it matches up with the world around us. Think about the natural world in which we live. Uh, think about any documentary you've seen, like of, of nature, right? Probably the title is like Blue Planet or Planet Earth or something with the planet. And uh, anything with National Geographic, what they do, they, they film in beautiful detail the world as it is. They're not really telling us why it is that way or how it is that way. They're just saying, look, he, here is what we see. What we see, think about it. Do we see like a disconnected, loosely associated entanglement of randomly evolved species that, that kind of work together in a fractured way? Like it looks like they've been put together piecemeal. Is, is that the picture that we get when we watch those documentaries? Or, or do we see a beautiful, cohesive, codependent, intermingling, beautifully designed whole. I mean, isn't that what we see? I, I, I was thinking particularly of this one documentary I saw of a, they just filmed, a, told the story of one tree in the Amazon, you know, those giant trees. And they talked about the thousands of species that were present on this tree and the way in which they all worked together in, in perfect harmony. The ecosystem was complete. It was beautiful was complex. Those kinds of beautiful, complex things, they, they come usually from either one plan or one mind, don't they? Warring deities, random evolution doesn't end up with that kind of beautiful, cohesive whole. What, what we see around us gives testimony to the claims of the Bible. There's one God, one creator, and he has made things perfect and good. You can still see his fingerprints all over creation, even though, even though we have done uh, a very masterful job of wrecking a lot of it, haven't we? I mean, you can see the effects of sin and humanity all over the world, and yet you can still see this, this cohesive uh, whole. So what does this tell us? It tells us that, that there is one God. There's reason to believe what the Bible says is true. There's one God, and, and yet what it also tells us is that if there's one God, then we need to make peace with that one God. That we need to be reconciled with that one God. And, and the way to that reconciliation is in the, the last bit of our verses five and six. The second thing, the second exclusive thing of the gospel is that there's only one mediator. Verse five says, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Uh, so a mediator, as you probably know, is someone who tries to bring peace or reconcile two uh, parties in conflict. In this case, it's humanity and God. Uh, th- the problem, though, is that to have an effective mediator, you need to have someone that can bridge the gap, that can represent both parties. So if you have two people who speak different languages, who are in conflict, you need to find someone who speaks both languages. They're not going to be able to come to some resolution if, if they can't understand what the other person is saying 
If you, you can't express uh, sorrow, like I'm sorry for that, and forgiveness, and come together. If, you, if the language is different, you need to have a mediator who is able to represent both, both sides. This has been humanity's problem since the very beginning, almost the very beginning, Genesis 3. When sin came into the world, we were separated from God, and the, the gap was such that we could not come to a point of reconciliation. All through the Old Testament, this is, this is what God's people are dealing with. Now, God sent help. He sent judges, he sent kings, he sent prophets, he sent priests, all of them appointed by God, and they give, like they gave leadership to God's people. They helped uh, temporarily to manage sin, but, but none of them could really resolve the essential conflict of sin. We see this really clearly in the, the life of Job, the experience of Job. If you know Job's story, even if you're not familiar with the Bible, we tend to know Job, because Job, Job was the one who suffered. Under the hand of Satan, Satan said to God, I want to have my way with Job. God said, you can do that. He had some parameters. Uh, So Job's wealth was taken away. His family was taken away. Everything. I mean, he was suffering greatly. And in the midst of that, Job, man, Job was struggling to understand it. He knew he wasn't perfect, but he also knew that he wasn't in grievous sin. And so he couldn't understand how he deserved this level of suffering. He found himself wanting to question God, to ask some questions of God. But as soon as he started thinking about that, he knew, man, there's no way that could happen. It's impossible for a human being to actually to kind of have a dialogue with God. Here's what he says. Uh, This is in Job chapter nine, kind of early on. uh, Verses one to four. He says, truly I know that it is so. But how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? And then a few verses later, he says of God, For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. So Job is saying, look, look it's impossible for a holy God and a sinful human being to have any kind of meaningful connection. There's no way that reconciliation can take place. What Job longs for is an arbiter. He longs for someone who can, who can have his hand and represent both the, the divinity and humanity at the same time. But Job sees there's no way that that can happen. Which is why in the New Testament... When Jesus' birth is announced, there is such wonder and glory and amazement from the angels themselves. Because they speak about Jesus and they call him Emmanuel. In Matthew 1, 23, Emmanuel, God with us. They recognize the astounding truth that God himself is coming into the form of humanity so that he would be able to bridge the gap. So that he would be able to make a way for reconciliation. However, The incarnation, just Jesus coming, wasn't enough. There was still a missing piece. See, it wasn't just enough to have a connection between God and man. Uh, We needed an actual answer for sin. And we see that in the next part, the last bit of the uh, exclusive nature of the gospel. And that is that there is only one ransom. We see that in the last bit of verse 5 and verse 6. The man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So ransom, we know that word usually. Uh, Ransom is the price paid to set someone free. 
Uh, most of the time, we think about it in terms of like extortion, right? You kidnap someone, you ask for a ransom, they have to give you money. But in the Bible, uh, it's most often used in terms of justice. It's like the penalty for a crime. So uh, here's, you know, a common problem, and not so much for us anymore, but back in the day, big problem. Your neighbor has an ox, and the ox keeps killing people with their horns, right? What are you going to do? Thankfully, uh, the Word of God helps us. Here's Exodus 21, 29 to 30. Uh, says, but if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. Seems reasonable, right? If your neighbor's got an ox, keeps killing people, you tell him, tie up your ox, and he doesn't, well, then the ox has got to be killed, and he should be killed, because it's manslaughter, unless a ransom is set. And a ransom would be a price that that person could pay to free themselves, to spare their life. The problem with sin is that the ransom price is, is infinite. See, we have not committed a crime in our sin against a finite being, another person. We've committed it against a holy and infinite God, which means that the price that would be set for us to be free from sin is infinite. For us to pay it off, it it would take all of eternity. That's part of the idea behind hell, that there is an eternity of suffering as we are paying for this infinite sin. This is also why we, we can't help each other out. Psalm 49, verses 7 to 9, says this, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. It's saying no one has the resources to be able to pay off someone else's debt so that they do not see the pit of hell. We don't have that capacity. We don't have that kind of wealth. To be saved from sin, we needed someone with infinite resources and the ability to pay on our behalf. That's Jesus. That's what he did. We see it explained really well. Uh, There's this guy, the Anselm. His name is the Anselm of of Canterbury and uh, kind of an early church father. He says this, salvation could not have been done unless man paid what was owing to God for sin. But the debt was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it so that the same person must be both man and God. Thus it was necessary for God to take manhood into the unity of his person. This is what happened when Jesus came into the world as a human being. This is the miracle and the beauty of it that he then was able to have both the resources necessary and the opportunity, the capacity to pay on our behalf, which he did on the cross. He paid the infinite price with his own infinite being. And so he paid the price that only man could owe and he paid what only God could pay. Those two things coming together is the exclusive gospel. It's, it's why Jesus is the only way to be saved. But while the gospel is narrow and exclusive, it's not narrow-minded. It's not that the Bible, it's not that, that God simply wasn't open to other viable spiritual o- options. It's it's not that there were other things and, and you know, God said, no, I want the market, market cornered on salvation. It's going to be my thing and no one else's. It's not that at all. It's, it's that God knows that what we see in the scriptures, that there is no other effective way for us to find peace with this one God. 
The gospel is exclusive uh, in the same way that a doctor will prescribe the exact perfect treatment for your illness. Like a good doctor. I mean, I know there's sometimes there's a lot of different options, a lot of different antibiotics, but very often there's only one drug that will work. And the doctor's job is to know that one drug and the right dosage so that you will experience healing. That, that's the gospel. There was one way that it could be done. And Jesus came and did it for us. That's the bottom line. There is no other name under heaven or earth by which we can be saved. But, but while the gospel is obviously very exclusive, that exclusivity fuels an inclusivity, uh, an open, wide net of invitation for all people to be saved. And so that's, that's the shift. We looked at the exclusive nature of the gospel. Now it's inclusive about it. Well, it all comes down to the word all, at least in our passage. Uh, we see it from, from the back to the front, starting in verse 6. Uh, Jesus is the ransom for all. God desires all people to be saved. Uh, and we should pray for all people. Very clearly, this, this singular message of salvation is for everyone. For all people. It doesn't matter where you are, what you believe, how you've been raised. There is, there is an answer for the turmoil of your life, for the eternal hope that you need. And it is in Jesus and it's open to all. The, the question that we need to ask is, like, what exactly does all mean here? Does it mean every single one? Or does it mean all kinds? It's an important question to ask because there are those that would look at a, a text like this and they would use it to argue for a universalist understanding of, of salvation. We talked a bit about that last week. Uh, one example is Carlton Pearson, a pastor who, who started to preach and teach, look, when it says ransom for all, what it means is that everyone, every single person on the planet is already saved because the price has already been paid for their sin. So you don't need to actually believe and claim the name of Jesus right now. Don't worry about it. It's, it's paid for. It's done for. Every single one. Another reason uh, we need to ask this question is some people will look at this text and will question the character of God. They'll say, you know, it seems like God wants like every single person to be saved, but it also seems like maybe he can't really make it happen. And so how, how do we understand that? Well, one question that we should ask, right, uh, just to make it clear is, does the Bible say that every single person on the planet will be saved? And the answer is no. No, what we see in, in the Bible is that there will be a day of judgment for everyone, but that there are those that will trust in the name of Jesus, the work of Jesus, and be saved, and there are others who will reject Jesus and will be condemned in their sin. Jesus himself paints this picture for us. Here's uh, Matthew 7, verses 13 to 14. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. When, when Jesus says, talks about a gate, he's really talking about himself. He's saying there's, there's one way for humanity to be saved and, and there are those that will find it, but there are those that will not. So the all in our passage uh, must mean then all kinds. All kinds of people will be saved. And in fact, uh, that matches up best with the rest of the passage. So look at verse 7 where, where Paul tells the truth. He says, uh, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. He's just emphasizing here a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. 
Now, for us, that's not that big a deal. Gentiles means everyone who's not Jewish. Most of us here are Gentiles. This doesn't seem like a big deal because most of our churches are filled with Gentiles. But back then, that would have blown their minds. Back then, everyone expected that Jesus, as the Jewish Messiah, was, had come to save the Jewish people. And yet what Jesus intended was not just for the Jews to be saved, but for all people to be saved. That's why he sent Paul. He said, Paul, go and bring this message to even the Gentiles, even those who don't have any Jewish lineage. This is the magnitude and the scope of the gospel. Everyone, from every tribe, every nation, every social class, every gender, all people have an opportunity to claim the name of Jesus and be saved. This is the wide open call of the gospel. This is the inclusive call of the gospel, and it should be the focus and and the the mission of the church that we would see the gospel this way and see our role in it. In fact, that's exactly where where Paul began. So we're going to jump back to the front of the text, verses 1 and 2, and uh, we're going to see, we saw gospel theology, now gospel action. What are we called to? What action are we called to? Uh, Here's what it says. First of all, then... I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So you see there uh, two points of action. There's uh, prayer, gospel prayer, and gospel living. We're going to start with the gospel living. You see kind of the flow there. We're to pray for those in power and authority. Uh, why? So that we could live a peaceful and quiet life. And that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? You know what I think uh, often? My life is not peaceful. I wish it was. Lord, would you please bring greater peace, greater just tranquility? That's what the word quiet there means. It's kind of tranquil life. We might read that and say, yes, Lord, I, I'm happy to pray for that. I would love it if there was greater peace in my life, greater heartache, greater difficulty, greater, less fires for me to put out. But if we've read to the end of the passage, which we have, we know that's not exactly the context here. That this is not the end. This peaceful life is a means to another greater end. And we see that end because in the next verses, we see what God is most excited about. Look at verses three and four. Paul says, this is good. A peaceful, tranquil life is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so we see there what's actually going on. This isn't really about us finding just greater peace and relaxation and like just a tranquility with our life. It's, It's not ultimately about that. It's about us having the opportunity to share the message of peace with others. It's, it's about gospel living. So you have to understand, when Paul was writing this, it was uh, early church times. Um, churches were just beginning to grow and, and kind of flourish, and the persecutions towards the church was just beginning. Uh, when Paul talks about praying for those in authority, the, those in high positions and kings, he's really talking uh, in their context about the Romans, right? the Roman governors, uh, the emperor himself. And for sometimes... Like at the beginning, the Romans were like, Christians, uh, whatever, like Jewish leaders, you deal with that. We don't really care. But in time, as the church began to grow, then the Romans began to push back a a bit. And and Nero was like the worst of it, right? Blaming the Christians, killing Christians, persecuting them. And so what Paul is saying is, you know, there actually is great help for us. It's good for our mission if we are able to live in peace. Not just so that we can have peaceful lives and not worry, but so that 
people can see our lives. People can see the way that we live and they can be impacted for the gospel. Right? There's something that good that happens when we're not fleeing for our lives, firstly, when we're able to put down roots <clears throat> and people can see, you know, man, but it seems like their life, something, something about them is different. One of the greatest arguments for and against Christianity uh, are Christians, frankly. Right? The way that we live can either mean that this, this thing called Christianity, this faith is either very attractive or not attractive at all. Um, Personally, I feel like every Christian sports league should be disbanded because from what I hear, if you've talked to people who played in them, they're the dirtiest leagues of all. I don't know what it is. People are just taking out their aggressions, but I talked to guys who played hockey in the Christian hockey league. They say it's horrible. The language is worse than anywhere else that they play. The violence is worse. They're always fighting. In the soccer, it's the same. It's crazy, right? Imagine not being part of the church and coming and joining this and seeing all of that would you ever think like, man, I don't know what's going on. I want more of this. <laughs> no, you'd be like, I want less of this. Wherever you're going Sunday morning, I'm not going to be there. Because there's nothing good happening in your life, at least that I can see. However, when we have opportunities to live authentic, genuine gospel lives, ones that, look at the wording, right? What, a dignity, tranquility, peace, godliness, Right? When our lives exhibit the gospel, when we're gracious, when we're forgiving, when people in our workplace, in our neighborhood see us responding to difficult situations, when people have hurt us or wronged us and we are not losing our mind, we're not vindictive, we're, we're kind and gracious, those are opportunities for them to see the good work that the gospel does in a human being's life. And, and that's what Paul is talking about here. In fact, throughout the whole New Testament, we see the importance of not just knowing the gospel, but living it so that we would have these opportunities to make much of who Jesus is and what he's done, how he's changed us. So here's a question for us if you're a Christian here this morning. You know, do you ever intentionally think like this? Like in the morning, do you, do you stop and pray, Lord, I know there's going to be a lot of fires that I need to put out today, but God, help me not to see just the putting over those fires as the ultimate goal. Lord, can you help me to look for those opportunities where, where maybe I might get a chance to, to display your grace, your love. Maybe someone will see something in the way that I interact. I can have a conversation. Lord, would you just help me to have my antenna up for those that might need an extra word of kindness or grace? See, this kind of intentional living, um, it, it, it's something you have to practice. When we start to live life this way and begin to see things this way, then our goals do change. Honestly, my, my goal every day, if I don't work at it, is just that I want things to be chill. Like chill at work, chill in the office. Courtney's so difficult to work with that it's just hard, but I pray for that. And, uh, but at home, right, what's, what's a good day in my earthly mind? It's just that there's, there's no hassles, or if there are hassles, they're ended with quickly. That's my leaning in my own nature, but when I'm reminded of all that God has done, I see things differently. I see, man, maybe even in these difficult times, there's opportunity to make much of who God is. And maybe then my goal is greater than just a quiet, peaceful life. It's, it's that other people would know the peace of God. See, when we live like this, when we think this way, we end up being life-saving people naturally, joyfully. It's just kind of, it's kind of who we are. It's who the church is meant to be. 
So that was the first call to action, uh, gospel living. The second one is gospel prayer. Um, I was on uh, the debate team in my high school, and my a debate coach always said, look, when you're, when you're writing your argument, save the strongest argument for last. That way, even if they forget everything else you said, they'll remember that last strongest argument. So you'll notice here in the text that Paul begins with prayer, but we're ending with it. That's because even, I'm hoping, even if you forget everything else that's been said, that you'll remember as you leave, man, something about prayer. Prayer, yeah. Yeah, because that's the emphasis. That is the main thing that Paul is calling us to here. He, he talks about it a lot. He says, uh, he mentions four kinds of prayer. Supplications. Uh, prayer itself. Supplications are requests to God. Uh, praying is a speaking to God. Intercession is appealing boldly on behalf of others. Thanksgiving is obviously uh, prayers of thankfulness for what God has done. And while there's a lot of reasons that we should pray, and the Bible calls us to pray, right? When we worry, when we need healing, there's lots of circumstances where we should pray. In the context of our passage, again, uh, we should think about how we can reach the lost. It's evangelism is the context. And in that, in that context, prayer becomes all the more important because prayer really is the fuel for evangelism. Prayer is the thing that, that spurs on and ignites the movement of God in, in any group of people. In fact, if you look back through church history, every major revival that has happened, every significant movement of God has been preceded by fervent, heartfelt prayer on behalf of God's people. Here's a couple of examples. Uh, the Scottish revivals of the 1950s were preceded by what they called a travailing prayer. This idea of a, of a hard-working prayer where the, the people of God were in agony over the, the people around them in their culture, in the communities who didn't know the Lord. And so they, they poured out their hearts, asking for God's spirit to move and, and not just to make life better, but to help them see the ultimate life-saving work of Jesus. And, and God moved. There are hundreds, thousands of people in the 1950s in Scotland that came to Christ, that came to faith. It totally revitalized the whole nation. There were three great revivals in the United States. Uh, the first, it was in the 1730s, then in the early 1800s, and then in the 1850s. All of them were uh, magnificent movements of God. Uh, just as an example, in the last one, the last revival, uh, from 1857 to 1859, two-year period, one million people uh, came to Christ in America, which if you were to do it percentage-wise today, that would be like eight to 10 million people coming to faith in a two-year period. Just, just imagine the, the effect that that would have on the culture and, and the power of God that that reveals. That many people coming to the point of seeing their need for Jesus. Uh, Professor Michael Craven says this. He says, A common factor preceding each of these historic movements of God was a unified call to prayer within the church. So why is there this uh, causal connection? Why this link between uh, the people of God praying and then people coming to faith? Well, the obvious answer is that salvation is a work of God. It's a spiritual work. Here's what uh, Philip Reichen says. He says, Spiritual work is not accomplished by might, ability or technique, but by prayer. Which makes sense if, if we think about what we've seen already in our text. We've seen all that God has done to save us. His work in coming, his work, Jesus' work on the cross. Him finding a way where there was no way from our point of view. It's his, 
It's his mediation, it's his ransom, and it's also his work in every human heart to have them realize their need for Christ. It's spiritual work that convicts someone of their sin. It's the Spirit of God who must move to take a, a hard, a sin-hardened heart and make it soft to the gospel. It, it's not work that we can do. We are called, of course, clearly, to proclaim the gospel, to share the good news, to, to, to be ready to give a defense of our faith and to explain, yeah, we have work to do, but the ultimate work only God can do. And so if that's the work that only God can do, the best thing that we can do as the church is to be on our knees, is to be praying for those that don't yet know the Lord, is to have in our minds, have lists of people, people that we meet all over the place saying, Lord, I pray for this person. They don't know you yet. You need to move, Lord. You need to work. I pray for them consistently. But I think we know that that's really hard to do. I think we know that, man, there's a lot of things in our lives that get in the way of this kind of prayer. And they're good things, right? That if you think about your life, it's filled with relatively good things. Not many of us are scheming, scheming evil schemes, and that's keeping us from prayer. Most of us are, what are we doing? We're working, we're living, we're caring for the people around us, we're, we're being part of the church, we're being part of whatever is going on, it's good things. But we're losing sight of the greater thing. In fact, it's even possible for us to be doing the work of God and forgetting the importance of prayer. There's one story I came across um, about a woman named Joanne Shelter. Uh, in the 1980s, she went, uh, she moved to the Philippines uh, to do Bible translation with the Balangao tribesmen in the Philippine mountains. Uh, it was difficult work. Uh, very simple living, very different culture. Took a lot of time to try to get implanted and to know the people there, the tribes there. After five years, she came back uh, sort of on a break on furlough and, and she was exhausted. More than exhausted, she was really, really frustrated. After five years of ministry, th there were only two people that had come to faith and she was so disappointed. She, she so hoped that there'd be more fruit that would come from all of that work. And so she came back to the US, she went back to her home church who had sent her and was supporting her and she kind of poured out her heart for those that knew her. And they were sympathetic. They were compassionate. They were caring for her. But also, they kind of asked her some questions. They said, you know, Joanne, why, why didn't you tell us more about what was going on there? Why didn't you share with us the, the specific needs that you had and how hard it was? We would have been praying differently for you. She was convicted that she had been really trying to do this work without the prayer support that she needed. And she shares that then when she went back, uh, things were different. She writes, um, Now my church no longer prayed, Dear God, please bless Joanne wherever she is and whatever she's doing. Instead, they prayed with a burden for the lost in the Philippines. And she says, When I went back after furlough, things began to happen. Joanne did the same thing that she was doing before, translating the Bible, meeting with people, sharing the gospel, but now there was something different. People were responding. People were saying, I, I think I need Jesus. And they were asking, can I tell my friends? And over time, hundreds and hundreds of the Balangao tribes and came to faith. See, this is, this is always what happens when the church prays. And as a point of application for us as Tri-City Church, I, I need to tell you, I'm not really concerned that for us at this point, after five years of ministry, that we are going to be frustrated or disappointed. My greater concern is that we are going to be excited about the wrong things. 
that we are going to get caught up in the good things that are going on in our midst and that we are going to forget about the greater call we have to continue to go out and to, and to reach those who don't yet know the Lord. I mean, it's very easy for us as a church to, to be satisfied and to be content, to enjoy being together, to be talking about God and about Jesus, to be uh, getting to know each other more. I mean, there's lots of good things that are going on. Bible studies, community groups, dodgeball. Great. I loved it. I loved hitting Don Knodel. It was the, just the joy of my life. He's at the back. <clears throat> Those are great things. That's fun for us as a church, and we should do that, but, but we should not lose sight of the greater call that we have. Or we are going to be a life-saving station with great furniture, great parties, and yet no one's actually going out into the dark. No one's got their eye on the, on the sea to see who is perishing. We, we can't lose this heart lest we will, I mean, we will lose what it means to, be, to actually be the church. See, that's what, that's what Paul's writing about for Timothy. And saying, first of all, prayer. Why? Because it's from that that all the good spiritual work flows. So what are we to do? Well, well obviously we are to pray. We're to pray as individuals. Pray, or, pray in our own quiet time. Pray in our community groups. Pray in our Bible studies. We have prayer here Thursday morning, which I know is early for some, but I would love to see more people here. We're going to make an intentional point of not just praying for the prayer requests, but also for our city, for our province, our country, and the world. Because we need to take to heart what is being said here in the word. I feel a conviction as your pastor to say that, yes, we are praying, but, but I'm not sure that we have this kind of heart for prayer. And if we are truly going to see the Tri-Cities and beyond reach for the gospel, we, we need to be praying this way. This is how God works. This should be the joy of our heart, that we would see people coming to life-saving faith, and that we would have the joy of being a part of it. Lord, I pray that we in Canada would not take for granted the peace that you've given us here. We as the church would not simply enjoy the peace that you've given, but rather we would see it as, a, as an opportunity. We would capitalize upon it to reach others for the lost. And we pray here also there be great fruit, Lord, in the Tri-Cities and beyond, by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.